All right. Well, Shabbat Shalom for the second time tonight. Of course, uh, if you're a, only a Sabbath person in daylight hours, it's daylight somewhere in the world. So I could say Shabbat Shalom. Uh, and uh, welcome to the Late Late Show with Noel Joshua Hadley. It's uh, 11 o'clock Eastern right now. And I just got through a couple hours of commentary on the Torah portion. So this is a nice little change of pace right here. Book of Creations, the second uh, second session, we're going through this. And I want to remind everybody that uh, I, I don't want to like, nobody needs to, to, to freak out over some of the things they read in here that's different than scripture, all right? If, if you believe that there was a worldwide flood, if you believe that there was a watcher's incursion, you know, the Anunnaki coming down, if you believe there was a Tower of Babel, if you believe that there was a creation account, then it only makes sense because these were these affected these were worldwide events. Now the watchers were kind of local uh, to the Mesopotamian region. Nevertheless, it would only make sense that you're going to see these stories told all over the world. And in fact, we do. We have worldwide deluge, what they call the deluge myth, right? Worldwide deluge stories. We see. Uh, the the watchers being touched upon in all different cultures and so on and so forth. Well, the same thing with Adam and Eve. And so this story, the book of creation, tells the creation story from the Egyptian perspective. Now, uh, again, just to let everybody know, if there's anything that we're going to read in here today, and there are, there are some things in here that are going to disagree with scripture. Because I am in a covenant relationship with Yahuwah, all right, the the Alahayam of Yasharel, then he has shown himself to be trustworthy and true. He is the word of Alahayam. He is Yehusha HaMashiach. I will take his word as told through Moshe over anything else. All right. Nevertheless, there are still things that, um, you know, like when you look at the Genesis story from, say, Adam to Noah, like they talk about these two family lineages, but there's a couple thousand years of history in there where like think about all the history that's happened since you know th this year is uh what 2023 we're almost into 2024 think of all the just the world history that's happened in the last 20 years alone right since since september 11th okay and just you then start you know thinking this through biblically as well so we're going to see um some of that tonight and uh hope you guys enjoy this i will also say before i forget too that this is the, tonight i'm calling this the invasion of gardenland you know you should know the gardenland is eden right it seems pretty straightforward and the egyptians called it garden land kind of a fun title sounds like a theme park right and uh the the adam character in here is a composite meaning that there are there are two different characters in here that make up the biblical Adam. And uh, also, when we get to the, the second Adam in here, he is a composite of both the Adam of the Bible and Cain, the, the, his son Cain through, well, you know, the, if you, the son of Hasatan through Eve. So uh, you guys will see that for yourself. And again, it just it makes sense that these stories would go down and that it would take Yahuwaha to you know iron out a few details and go, no, no, okay, you, you've heard this, you've seen this in the in the ancient books, but here's the, the truth of the matter. 
We're on chapter four, the affliction of Alahayam. If you guys recall last week that we saw the uh, creation of the world in which amazingly the pattern fits just like in Genesis. The same thing happened, except we know Genesis one is a recreation event. And, uh, and so we saw the destruction of that world and we're, you know, this huge, these two big dragons came up. Somebody commented and they have a very good point that a lot of the ancients referred to comets as dragons. And so you could imagine these two big comets going in a circle, kind of like eating each other's tail, like the Ouroboros. The thing is though, is that we're going to actually see a comet in here and uh, it's not a dragon. So we're going from a chapter about these dragons that actually come down and make a continent. Okay. Comets don't do that. This dragon I showed you, you know, made Northern Africa, essentially. It was so huge. Uh, that's not something a comet would do. All right. This comes from the scroll of Carabol Pachtherman. And uh, so th th they're telling right here, this is a compilation of the, the person who has written this book, Book of Creation. He's taken this, and this is an ancient text. I mean, this is like, like 3,000, 3,500 years old, this text we're reading reportedly. He's taking this from older texts, and they're, you know, assembling them together. And uh, the scroll uh, wrote, uh, the, the, the writer of the scroll wrote, The forebears of all the nations of man were once one people, and they were the elect of Allah Hayam, who delivered all the earth over to them, all the people, the beasts of the field, the creatures of the wasteland, and the things that grow. So they're saying that the, the, the sons of Allah, Allah Hayam uh, were once in control of the earth. There's a lost history for us right there. They they dwelt through long ages and lands of peace and plenty. All right. And uh, you guys know my view that I believe that we were all formerly sons of Allah Hayam. I think this is talking about us. Um, and uh, that, of course, we're, we're here to be tested and tried and to reclaim our status as the sons of Allah Hayam once again. So, you know. Are we going to use the word reincarnation here? I don't, I really don't know. I don't have a dog in that fight, but there, there does seem to be that the, the sons of Allah were on the earth at one time and that it was a land, it was a time of peace and plenty. There were some who struggled harder, were more disciplined because their forefathers had crossed the great dark void. Now I'm going to just tell you guys right now that the, whoever, translated to Colburn. Um, if you guys know who Michael Heiser is, Michael Heiser, he died this last year. Incredible individual. He was one of those who, um, he taught me that the earth was flat. And he was the guy who came out and said, uh, the Hebrews believe the earth was flat, emotionless, under a solid firmament. He went up there and gave the whole illustration, uh, this big talk on it. It was mind blowing. And then at the end of it, he was like, yeah, that's what all the ancients believed. It's what the Hebrews believed, but we don't have to believe that today. Now, I'm not criticizing the guy, but when I heard that, I'm like, are you serious? Like, you're telling me what the Bible says and telling me not to believe it? Well, he was, uh, there's um, a lot of uh, uh, writers and scholars that are really into uh, these, um, these Sumerian texts now, and they're translating them, and I'm buying some of these, and they're making it out like the Copernican Revolution. 
like these rotate these planets and all the you know coming from the stars and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, really? Did they really believe that back then? Well, the reason I bring up Michael Heiser is that before he died, he went on this campaign. I mean, he was really like he was pointing out these people and these translations and go like, nope, sorry, the original text. There was a flat, motionless plane, solid firmament. These guys are coming out and claiming that they have this wishful thinking. They're trying to take the modern Copernican revolution and make it sound like the ancients believe that. And they did not. So anything you read in here where it talks about like the great dark void, uh, you know, they almost make it out like they almost make it out like they're coming across outer space from this great distance, you know, from some other place. That's not what any ancient writers are talking about. And if there is a great dark void that they crossed, they're, they're going to be talking about the spiritual curtain. They're going to be talking about the waters, about the firmament, stuff like that. All right. So you could say that they came, our forefathers came from the, uh, the heavens above the firmament, above the great dark void or the, you know, the other side. Right. Their desires were turned uh, Godward or divine word. And they were called the children of Allah. Hayyam. Now we, we saw this last week when, um, you know, he created also, uh, he created man and uh, Adam, uh, as we know, Adam and Achua or Hava, Eve, not been created yet, but he he put within them, within their, their mind's eye, you know, this vision of all that ever was and would be. And they saw, you know, Allah Hayyam and, you know, he, they, they then, you know, became uh, they, they stood up erect with righteousness at this point. They started becoming the children of Allah Hayyam. Their country was undu uh, undulating and forested. It was fertile, having many rivers and marshes. There were great mountains to the east and to the west, and in the north was a vast stony plain. Then came the day when all things became still and apprehensive, for Allah Hayyam caused a sign to appear in the heavens, so that men should know the earth would be afflicted, and the sign was a strange star. The star grew and waxed to a great brightness and was awesome to behold. Here's that dragon I was telling you about that's a comet or, you know, a star. Uh, not an actual dragon as per last week, which was an actual dragon. It put forth horns and sang, being unlike any other ever seen. That's kind of interesting that it, it sang. So men seeing it said among themselves, surely this is Allah Hayyam appearing in the heavens above us. The star was not Allah Hayyam, though it was directed by his design. But the people had not the wisdom to understand. Then Allah manifested himself in the heavens. His voice was as the roll of thunders, and he was clothed with smoke and fire. He carried lightnings in his hand, and his breath, falling upon the earth, brought forth brimstone and embers. His eye was a black void, and his mouth an abyss containing the winds of destruction. You, you see this a lot with, uh, this. here's El Shaddai right here, uh, the destroyer. Like it says, Allah Hayyam, you know, he talks about, they even put an uppercase D here, destruction. And you're going to see that with the, eventually, if we get to it uh, in the next book in the series, with the Exodus event, that he is the destroyer. He encircled the whole of the heavens, bringing upon his back a black robe adorned with stars. Kind of an interesting way to describe the um, the waters above or the firmament, right? That it's like the black rope that falls on the stars. I'm almost get, getting the feeling like the stars are like a train moving behind him almost. Such was the likeness and manifestation of Allah Hayyam in those days. Awesome was his countenance, terrible his voice of wrath. The sun and moon hid themselves in fear and there was a heavy darkness over the face of the earth. Now, this is one of the things that uh, when you get into 
classic Christian eschatology that they really struggle with. They have this idea that the what they call the day of the Lord, or you could say the day of Yahuwah. It's like this one-time event, and it hasn't happened yet, and it's at the very end of time. But even within Hebrew scripture, you see multiple days of the Lord. You see multiple days of just wrath and judgment, and he coming and showing himself. Uh, Yeshiyahu, the prophet Isaiah, talks about him being seen over Egypt. And you're like, what? When did that happen? Right? Well, I think it was the Exodus event. But um, so you, you see multiple, like, and this confirms that as well, that there are multiple times when Allah came and made himself known in, in a wrathful, you know, just awe, you know, sense. It's getting late, guys. I'm going to probably bumble through some words tonight. I apologize. Allah passed through the spaces of the heavens above with a mighty roar and a loud trumpeting. I love that line of the trumpeting. You know, you think of like the apocalyptic trumpet sounds we hear. It's debated whether they come from heaven or they're from the like the dumb tunnels below. I've heard different theories on that. But, you know, I've always wanted to hear one of the loud trumpets going off. And so now the whole world is hearing this loud trumpeting that's, that's you know, he, he's got a robe of, of blackness and stars following in these trumpets and and that the roars is awe-inspiring scene. Then came the grim, dead silence and black, red, lit twilight of doom. Great fires and smoke rose up from the ground and then gasped for air. So it sounds like um, there's um, maybe volcanoes going off. And there's probably like poisonous gases, um, you know, where men are able, unable to breathe. Uh, the land was rent asunder and swept. And of course, um, poisonous gases could also be associated with comets. We've seen that throughout history, different judgment events when uh, like uh, diseases uh, kind of started spreading amongst men. And they always blame the rats, you know, the, the fleas on the rats when there's like actually no, like with the Black Plague and the Plague of Justinian in, uh, in the 640s, uh, or no, I'm sorry, the 540s, like there's no evidence whatsoever for, for fleas on rats at all. The land was rinsed asunder and swept clean by a mighty deluge of water. So here we go. This is the waters I believe that we open with in Genesis 1 when Alahayam flips on the light. It's total darkness. He flips on the light and there's just water everywhere, right? And the Ruach HaKadosh is hovering over the water and the land comes up out of the water. The land was rinsed. Uh, okay. A hole opened up in the middle of the land and the waters entered and it sank beneath the seas. What is that hole in the middle of the land? You know, a lot of us uh, speculate it's hyper, uh, hyperborea in the center of the earth, uh, at least in the center of our realm. Uh, that may actually work with the tides. That's a kind of a theory we don't really know. There's a lot of ancient texts that talk about that. The mountains of the east and west were split apart and stood up in the midst of the waters, which raged about. The northland tilted and turned over on its side. Square earth, cube earth. <laughs> I don't really know. It's like, I'm going to make some really lame jokes tonight. I was just talking to someone who advocates cube earth, so... Then again, the tumult and clamor ceased and all was silent. In the quiet stillness, madness broke out among men. Frenzy and shouting filled the air. They fell upon one another in senseless, wanton bloodshed. Neither did they spare woman or child, for they knew not what they did. So floods coming over. They're all killing each other. Obviously, they have fallen from grace at this point. They are clearly not the sons of Allah Hayam anymore. Uh, if they were at one time, it's it's gone bad 
one of the continued themes of humanity. They ran, they ran unseeing, dashing themselves to destruction. I mean, basically like throwing themselves off to the rocks. They fled to caves and were buried and taking refuge in trees. They were hung. I have read that line over and over again, trying to picture what is happening that they're getting hung in the trees. Are the trees killing them? Are they strangling them? I don't really know. But <laughs> yeah. Um, and maybe it's, you know, it's like when you, maybe it's just something as simple as like in, you know, after floods reside, you see like a lot of, uh, kind of corpses, like bloated, rotting corpses up in trees. There was rape, murder, and violence of every kind. The, the deluge of water swept back and the land was purged clean. Rain beat down unceasingly and there was great winds. The surging waters overwhelmed the land and man, his flocks and his gardens and all his work ceased to exist some of the people so uh yeah so i mean now this is right here that man ceased to exist uh i have no problem believing that but it, it seems kind of like they go back and forth on this and you guys may see what i'm talking about here some of the people were saved upon the mountainside well there it is right there <laughs> next line so it said man man his flocks and his gardens and all his work ceased to exist but some of the people were saved upon the mountainsides and upon the, the float sam, but they were scattered far apart over the face of the earth. Now, take that for what it is, grain of salt. You know, just believe it or don't. I don't really know. I don't uh, I don't know. Were there uh, still men on the earth in Genesis 1 when the waters, you know, uh, when the, the land came up out of the waters? I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm always going to take Genesis uh, as the final argument, but I don't want to put preconceived notions into it either. You see what I mean? Or if you know what I mean. They fought for survival in the lands of uncouthed people amid coldness. They survived in caves and sheltered places. All right. Why do I have these pictures here? You're going to see them just as a moment. The land of the little people in the land of the giants, the land of the necklace ones, and the land of marshes and mists, the lands of the east and west were all inundated. The mountain land and the lands of the south where there is gold and great beasts were not covered by the waters. So got you some medieval pictures here of the little people, the fairy people. You could tell these are the little people because they are smaller than this plant right here. And these uh, like daisies or, or uh, it's late. What are they called? Uh, the poppies or whatever. Uh, here you have uh, plenty of artwork on the the necklace people. They have the this is the the reference here the people with the faces on their chest. And we see this a lot of ancient artwork. Uh, I believe that they were on this earth. They did exist. Um, and uh, here in this text, they talk about it. And of course, here is one of the older pictures of giants. And you see this one here uh, putting up Stonehenge. Interestingly enough, I've been talking about Arthur recently in the year six uh, six thirty seven, the year of his death. And uh, when his grave was excavated, amazingly, they found a, uh, he was buried with Guinevere, his wife. Amazingly, they found a giant, I think he was nine foot tall uh, in there. And the, the woman was of normal size. So it was a giant with a normal size woman. And, um, you know, was Arthur a giant? I don't really know. Now, the reason I put this map here, this is the... Um, uh, an amazing map. And uh, this map here is, um, you could see that this is the AE map. 
and you can see the ring around it, which is Antarctica. Now, earlier uh, last uh, on my last uh, tour portions, I showed them the moon map and how this part of the realm right here where we are is just one little section of the earth. And in fact, the greater realm has more land mass than ours um, all put together. And so this I love this here, this this idea of Antarctica being these different islands because it actually works out on the moon map. I think they kind of squish the land together and this land represents land that goes way out beyond this. Uh, but the reason I talk about the, uh, the reason I have it is they talk about the golds and the great beast in the south. Now, according to the ancients, I don't really know what south would be. I mean, if this is Egypt or even um, the Celts writing this uh, or the Druids or whoever else, whoever you want to say wrote this uh, to the south, I would assume would be south as we think about it in, ter in globe terms, uh, Antarctica. Um, so you have these pictures here of the land of the south. This is, of course, the Urbano Monte map. Um, and all over here in the south, you see these big, you know, beasts. Like this looks like, uh, I think it would be called a Demetrodon, one of the dinosaurs that has the, the, the fin on the back looks just like the Metrodon. I mean, apparently they, they weren't supposed to know they existed back when they made this map. And this here, it looks almost like a um, like a kind of a Triceratops type of creature. It doesn't have horns, but it looks like it has a big uh, crest behind it, like a hard crest. Uh, and then it has like a, a lizard body with a tail similar to, as we would see, the different types of Triceratops creatures. This one's upside down because I guess we're in the land down under, right? In Australia, where people stand on their heads. Uh, but here we see another Dimitrodon creature uh, with a big old uh, like sail fin on its back. And we see other reptilian creatures. But it's interesting that in the Urbano Monte map, they put down in Antarctica, uh, you know, all these uh, just... Yeah, I mean, they put these tropical creatures like monkeys, they put reptiles. So was it, you know, icy back then? I don't really know. Uh, talking about the land of the giants, here we see a big old cyclops creature down in Antarctica. Uh, more dragons, more, you know, there's a camel, there's monkeys. I think there, there's a rabbit. And, of course, we see like uh, centaurs, we see mermaids, just all sorts of stuff down there. And um, so, you know, people ask too, like if there are still dragons on the earth, you know, what it, you could call them dinosaurs. I don't care what you want to call them. You know, are they all extinct where they go? I think that they're probably in the greater realm. I think they exist in the heaven wilderness. I really do. Men were distracted and in, in despair. They rejected the unseen Allah behind all things for something which they had seen and known by its manifestation. That's one of the themes of the Bible. It's one of the themes of the Colburn. They, they constantly say in here that the Allah the most high, he is beyond any, you can't even name him. I mean, he is just beyond any name. He, there's nothing that can really truly describe him. I mean, El Shaddai, it's like, you know, the destroyer, right? Like people get so offended by that. I go, that's not my God. You know, it's like, he's just, you can't, you can't, when you're attaching all these human emotions onto him and all these kind of things, it doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. Um, and so they had, you know, it, instead of seeing that the sun, it says this in other places in the Colburn, that the sun is this brilliant light, but it's meant to point us to the greater light beyond in the heavens that we can't see. 
And yet men, they don't look beyond that to the heavens. They worship the sun. And we get into, you know, the, the obelisk, the sun worship, right? All that kind of stuff. They, they fall for idols. And that was when we get to Genesis with the days of Jared, when they started having idols. And then this uh, Jasher talks about the, the flood, uh, of the destroys of the third of the earth. This is before Noah's flood as a result of the idols. The same thing happened here. They were... They weren't worshiping the most high. They were worshiping creation, thinking that was, right? They, mankind constantly falls into this trap. They were less than children in those days and could not know that Allah Hayam had afflicted the earth in understanding and not willfully for the sake of man and the correction of his ways. So they're saying here that Allah Hayam created the earth in such a way as to correct them and mankind uh, decided that they they well they didn't understand that and they wanted to start worship the actual creation, um, and it, it's the same thing today in like a materialistic realm, a uh, world where uh, we think that the earth is here to serve us, right? Because we're material minded, all this stuff is here for us. We think it's here for our pleasure, but not to chastise us, right? Not to uh, to uh, refine us in a fire and 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 uh, try us and and bring us back to uh, to our places as sons of Allah. The earth is not for the pleasure of man, but it is a place of instruction for his soul. There it is, right there. This is one of the continued themes we see if you went through the Book of Britain, Book of Wisdom. It says that again and again and again. A man more readily feels the stirrings of his spirit, of his ruach in the face of disaster than in the lap of luxury. The tuition of the soul is a long and arduous course of instruction and training. So again, like, you know, whenever there's a disaster, you always hear people saying, you know, they, they bring the, the, the priest and the rabbis and stuff in front of the cameras and they're like, they're really sad. And they're like, you know, where's, where's God in all of this? You know, that kind of stuff. And it's like, it's, they always try to weasel their, their work their way out of it, but it's, it's like, because they are struggling at understanding how any of this, you know, how El Shaddai could be a part of this, the destroyer, you know, their, their God, whatever. But it's like, no, all of this is here to grab our attention and, and make us look above to the heavens, the uh, to look beyond ourselves, beyond this material realm, this illusion. The tuition of the soul is a long and arduous course of instruction and training. If you guys were a part of my Torah portions tonight, I was really amazed to see that when uh, Yaakov returns after being gone 20 years from the promised land, he returns with Rachel and Leah. And after all was said and done, Leah and Rachel still had idols. And he and Yaakov knew it. And he's like, okay, remove all the idols. Let's be baptized. Let's be cleansed and put on new clothing, which was uh, symbolic of the Ruach HaKadosh, I believe. And and yet, despite their idols, Yahuwaha was merciful to them and gracious to them and still worked through them. And you see that it's a it's a journey we're on. We don't just get it right away, right? And we have to remember this to be, we need to look at other people who are not, are way beyond behind us on this journey. Maybe, maybe they're not on this journey, but maybe they are on this journey. And we need to give them the same grace and mercy and patience that we want Allah Hayam to give to us. Remember, how we judge others is how we're going to be judged. Allah Hayam is good, and from good, evil cannot come. He is perfect, and perfection cannot produce imperfection. Only the limited understanding of man sees imperfection in that, which is perfect for its purpose. 
This is where atheists and agnostics and others just fall, uh, fall on their face. This grievous affliction of man was another of his great tests. He failed and in so doing followed the paths of unnatural gods of his making. Man makes gods by naming them. But where in this is the benefit to him? And of course, this is why you guys know that Allah Hayam in, in the Hebrew scripture is like, do not make an image of me. There is nothing on this on the earth which can represent who I am. It is impossible. So if you make an image of me, you are now making something by your hands and worshiping a different God. Because that's not, I'm not, I will not allow myself to be represented by that idol. Evil comes into the midst of mankind, spawned by the fears and ignorance of men. An evil man becomes an evil spirit. That's really interesting. An evil man becomes an evil ruach. And whatever evil there is on earth comes either from the evil of ruachoth, of spirits, or the evil of men. So right here, you don't hear about this too much in the Colbrand, but here they have just acknowledged, every so often if you pay attention, they do. Here they have just acknowledged that there are evil spirits and there are evil men. Some of these spirits come from men, but they might be other kind of spirits as well. As, as the Colbrand would also admit that spirits become men. So kind of works both ways. All right, chapter five, in the beginning. I think we're going to go try to make it through chapter six tonight. Now the children of Alahayam were molded by the hand of Alahayam, which is called Alwin. Now, what is this hand of Alahayam that is called Alwin? Now, a lot of my listeners are going to immediately say the right hand of Alahayam is Yehusha Hamashiach. All right. I'm not going to argue with that. That might be it. Now, I, I try to look at commentary on the Colbrin. And one of the things I was seeing is that people are like, well, Alwyn is just the name for evolution. It's like, no, it's not the name for evolution. It is not at all the name for evolution. And it, it's just ridiculous how, you know, the, the ancient alien crowd, they, you know, they talk about, you know, they came from outer space, you know, they came to evolve man, right? All this kind of stuff. And so let's just keep reading here. All right. And you're going to think, you know, some of you are going to, you know, think my back's in the corner here. But the thing is, is that nine out of 10 times, I would say 10 out of 10 times, whenever they teach evolution in schools, I mean, fact of the matter is we're all evolutionists, all right? I'm an evolutionist. I am, I believe in microevolution. Young Earth creationists will say the same thing. They are microevolutionists. When we talk about, you know, we are not evolutionists, we're talking about macroevolution. The fact that you would... So a microevolutionist will say you breed a dog and a dog keeps getting bred and you breed the dog again and you go from a wolf to a chihuahua, but it's still a dog. You're not going to get a cat out of that. You're not going to get a bird. You're not going to get a lizard. You're not going to get an elephant. All right. You're not going to get a turkey. It's going to be a dog. Um, but what they do is, is that they, they will teach you microevolution and then they, they, you know, they always kind of throw some curveball in there and you're like, oh my God, it's true. Evolution, it's true. And it's like, no, no, no. They're just talking about what the ancients all knew about, about breeding. All the ancients knew it's, it, you know, it's nothing new. So, all right. And it manifested according to their desires. All right. So let me read this whole line again. All right. The children of Allah Hayam were molded by the hand of Allah Hayam, which is called Alwin, whatever that means. And it manifested according to their desires. Say what? Are we talking about macroevolution now? For all things that have life are molded by all wind. 
the fox shivering in the cold lands longs for warmth. And so its cubs have coats. Okay. So a fox gets hair, coats of hair, so it can survive in the snow. Still microevolution. The owl, clumsy in the dark, longs to see its prey more clearly. And in generations of longing, the desire is granted. All right. Still microevolution. We know that the birds can change their beak size, their wing length, their feather color, their eye size. They're all still birds. They, they change. They can, they can adapt if, if they're going to live in the, if an, they're basically saying, okay, let me finish this. Awan makes everything what it is for all things change under its law. All right. So, um, you know, if there are certain birds that, uh, I actually like the, the idea of elephants better. But let me show you this chart here. Okay. So here we have, oh man, my picture is getting in the way. So we're here we have a picture of evolution on the left. It should say macro evolution because even creationists believe in micro. But here we see starting at the bottom, we have this little slime ball, this blob, this organism that becomes a fish, that becomes a frog, that becomes a lizard, that becomes a bird, that becomes a dog, that becomes a human. Now, you know, a true evolutionist is going to laugh at this and say, that's not what it is. But yeah, it is. You know, as Kit Hoven used to say, we all came from rocks. Uh, he was a creationist, of course. He would mock the idea because um, that's ultimately what you have to believe, that we all came from rocks. And yet here we see in a uh, creation microevolution scale, we have a fish becomes a fish and a frog becomes a frog or maybe that's a toad over there frogs and toads all interrelated and a lizard becomes another kind of lizard and birds and birds and a dog becomes a dog and a <laughs> and a white man becomes a black man or maybe the black man becomes a white man you know whatever um, <clears throat> here we see another example of macroevolution we see starting with the uh, the earliest simple simplistic life becoming going all the way up to a trolobite to that fish that crawled out into the land to another lizard to a mammal to a monkey looking man and of course over here microevolution you see several different types of dogs right and um i chose this here because i now this i think was made by a macroevolutionist whatever uh but you can see here on this chart that uh you know could they give the example of the fox wanting a coat in the snow we see that with the woolly mammoths. I mean, we see that with the uh, the mastodons, woolly mammoths. They were hairy creatures. They lived in very icy conditions. Uh, you don't you don't you know usually think of an elephant ele in in the snow, right? Because elephants live in Africa. They live in India. They live in very warm climates, and yet there were these elephants that uh, lived in uh, very cold. And a great ex example of this is that um, uh, a car. Um, you know, you buy a car. It has a heater and an air conditioner, right? And so uh, it has many different things, but you're not going to run the air conditioner and the heater at the same time. But within our genes, we have the, that capability of adapting, right? And so we see that with many anim animals, birds, so on and so forth. All right. Men, I think the point was made. The, uh, the macroevolutionists will still argue with me. I don't really care. I don't even know if the macroevolutionists -evolution know that I exist, which might be a good thing. Men, too, are molded by their desires, but unlike the beasts and birds, their yearnings are circumcised by the laws of fate and destiny and the law of sowing and reaping. Now, this is they this this part is fascinating right here. These, the desires modified by the laws, are called uh, in an in it vadu. Hold on here. Um, we're going to get uh, I'm skipping here for just a second just to look at something. 
yeah, okay. So this here um, is the Celtic, okay. Uh, Inid, right here, if you can see it, I'm gonna highlight it here for you. Inid, Inid Vadu is the Celtic word for karma, all right? Um, now, I, it, Inid Vadu, the Celtic idea is very different than the um, kind of the Hindu version of it. Uh, but it's basically like um, what you reap is what you sow. All right. I'm going to simplify it basically. And um, that if you, it, it's it, biblically, we would say you choose the blessing or the curse. And if you choose the blessing and you keep choosing the blessing, you know, you become more and more and more like Allah Hayam formed in his image. And I think the, the Celtic idea of Inid Vadu is that karma is over multiple existences, but don't let that, you know, don't get freaked out by this word reincarnation. We're not necessarily talking about that. Um, it seems that the Colbrin talks a lot about pre-existence and the, the, the soul, uh, the soul or the, the sea of souls or soul sea of seed souls and so on and so forth. And the idea that, you know, that our placement on this earth now does depend on that former existence. Now, if you were part of my Torah portions tonight, I talked about the same thing with Yitchak, with Yaakov, with Abraham, that, uh, and James, the brother of Yahusha, and others, the, the 12 apostles, that they have this, uh, appear to have this former existence that were, they were placed accordingly in the world and not necessarily in, in the same order. For example, it appears that Yasharel or Yaakov was first in line. He was the first created, according to some texts. Abraham was created after him, and yet Abraham's his grandfather. Say what? See, that's how it, it doesn't, you know, work out always according to how we see things in linear events. Destiny may be likened to a man who must travel to a distant city, um, Oh, wait, maybe I didn't finish this. Unlike the beasts and birds, this and man is something relating to him rather than to his offspring, though they are not untouched by it. All right. Um, <clears throat> so they're not necessarily talking about, you know, microevolution from that degree. They're talking about, uh, yeah, it may relate to the generations, a change, but they're talking about something more embedded spiritually. Destiny may be likened to a man who must travel to a distant city whether or not he wishes to make the journey, the destination being his destiny. He may choose whether to go by way of a river or by way of a plain, whether across mountains or through forests. So you, 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 in this life, you have to get somewhere, right? And it's like, okay, you get out the map and you're like, here's all the different ways I can go. It's spring, it's summer, it's fall, it's winter. I'm going to decide accordingly. I'm not going to take the mountain pass because it's winter. I'm going to go, you know, on this uh this road, though, is kind of dangerous because, you know, maybe the people are there. So I'm going to cut through the forest. Right. So let's see what happens. He may choose to um, he may choose to go across mountains or through forests on foot or horseback, slow or fast. And whatever falls because of this is uh, because of this decision is fate. If a tree falls on him because he chose the forest path, it was fated for luck is an element of fate. Destiny leaves no choice. Fate gives limited choice, which may be good or bad, but it cannot be averted. What is fated must be, for at no point can there be any turning back. If this isn't talking about, like, even predestination here, guys, I mean, it just seems like it's saying that, you know, 
we only have so many we all have so many choices in this life but it all kind of leaves leads to a certain fate we you can't like you can look back at that and go man if i hadn't walked through that forest i'd still be alive no you wouldn't yeah the tree fell on you but you would have just died somewhere else like there's only so much that you can uh, so many variations on this journey that lead to different outcomes the circumstances or uh in again think of the word pharma from a Celtic perspective of the traveler conformed to the law of sowing and reaping he may travel in comfort or pain happily or sorrowfully with strength or weakness heavily burdened or lightly burdened well prepared or ill prepared when the destination is set according to the degrees of a former life then the circumstances of the journey should conform with the desire okay so they're basically saying that how we even live our lives now appears to be the uh, results of a former life now again let's not get all hung up on the word reincarnation because if you believe in pre-existence as i do it means that even our salvation journey is dependent upon a past life it, it's multiple lives it it was from our former existence to our present existence and as i went over with um if you guys saw my uh, presentation on uh, C.S. Lewis and his views on universal salvation, he really criticized the Protestant idea that uh, that Protestants see a person as like like a tree falling in the woods and he lies where he falls. Like how whatever state he was when he died, that's what they go into eternity. And he was kind of like, well, no, like, you know, the pursuit, like you don't just become a robotic holy person afterwards. You still have free will and i fully agree like we went over this with angels and how you know christians have this idea that angels are just these perfect robotic creatures that just do no wrong and it's like no the hebrew idea when you look at all these extra biblical books is that angels can also choose to do wrong that doesn't mean they're fallen evil angels they can they can they have a free will as well they can choose to disobey um and it's the same thing i believe when we enter the next realm uh enter it's like you know some people in this life they just don't want to be holy they don't want to live a set apart life others pursue that more and i think it's gonna be like that in the heavenly realm where some people are like yeah like they have the choice in front of them and they're not going to take it and other people are like no i'm going for it i want to be holy i want to be set apart they're going to be really zealous you know in the in the afterlife all right so all that to say is that how we live our lives now and our decisions according to this according to this book is saying that it may be because of your former existence and again i think that lines up with a lot of my research in actual biblical books i do I, I think that there's something to that maybe you don't maybe some of you might not like that but you know i'm kind of a kind of a i guess a little bit of a stoic myself like i'm i'm kind of more in, interested in just the the information i try not to let my emotions get in the way uh, when the destination is set according to the degrees of a former life then the circumstances of the journey should conform with the desire for what use is it desiring a great destination when the law of sowing and reaping decrees that an intolerable burden must be carried on the way far better to have lesser aspirations the degrees of fate are many the degrees of destiny are few hmm. interesting all right now I have this picture of Mount Maru in India. Uh, I don't know if there's anybody. Well, I shouldn't say anybody. It seems like 
it seems like everyone has the idea that this is not the real Mount Maru, that this is just a mountain named Maru, almost like a like misdirection almost. But it is in India, uh, right around uh, where uh, Maru was supposed to be. So let's see what they say about Mount Maru. When the earth was young and the race of man still as children, there were fertile green pastures in the land where all is now sand and barren wasteland. I, I, uh, you know, a lot of people think they're talking about Mesopotamia here. And of course, that's where, you know, a lot of people believe biblically Eden was as well. In the midst of it was a garden land. So there's your Eden reference right there. There's garden land, which lay against the edge of the earth, the edge of the earth, not in the middle of Mesopotamia eastward towards the sun rising so as far as you can go east and it was called Marua there is Maru meaning the place of the garden on the plain so they're saying Mount Maru is Eden all right so there you have multiple different religions all talking about the same thing and interesting enough you know Maru is a mountain it was a huge mountain a cosmic mountain and we're going to see here that uh you know, it happened in uh, extra biblical books. A lot of people have this idea when they read Genesis that, you know, it was like Eden was there until the flood and the flood destroyed it. No, the flood did not destroy it. Eden was actually taken up. Uh, and it was the reason you could say it was a cosmic mountain like Maru is that it was actually heaven coming down to earth. It was where the gods Elohim or the Alhaim, Alhaim came down, uh, came down to earth. Uh, and, uh, of course it was taken up. It lay at the foot of a mountain, uh, the, the, the place of the, the garden lay at the foot of the mountain, which, uh, the mountain of Maru, which was cleft at its rising and out of it flowed the river of Tardana, which watered the plain. Sounds just like Genesis from the mountain on the other side, ran the river call, which watered the plain through the land of, uh, Kalida. The river Nara flowed westward and then turned back to flow around the garden land. Uh, it, you know, it sounds just like, you know, descriptions of Hyperborea or, you know, other things we've looked at. Now, I, I put this in here from the first book of Adam and Eve just to show you it's the same description. Look what it says here. This is chapter one, verse one. On the third day, Elohim planted the garden in the east of the earth on the border of the world eastward, beyond which, towards the sun rising, one finds nothing but water that encompasses the whole world and reaches to the borders of what? heaven it took me a long time to see that as you guys know uh maybe some of you tuning into this video haven't uh, seen all the research i put into the hidden wilderness the greater realm uh and how uh you know the undying lands this huge swath of land that all the ancients believed was beyond human civilization and i believe it's still there uh you know i am not a globe earthist and of course uh globe globe earth deception is to hide this greater realm. And it's interesting here that it says uh, that heaven touches down. It, it goes, if you keep going, you know, out past Eden, past this ocean, then you get to the borders of heaven. All right. And uh, we see that like in um, visions of Paul and other things where, uh, where the kingdom is, it's there in this hidden wilderness where the borders of heaven are. All right, so um, this is interesting here. This is uh, Angkor Wat. Um, I was actually at this, so you can see this lake here in Angkor Wat in the background. So if you, right where this photographer is, right on that very spot, I was in a, uh, uh, a moped accident. I actually got really hurt. I was young, I was uh, 20, uh, but I like actually flew off my moped in front of it. 
Um, I mean, you know, I got up and dusted myself off. I'm like, I'm all right, you know, but it was like inside. I'm like, oh, I think if that happened to me now in my 40s, I think it would be a different story. Uh, but anyways, uh, these are you see these five central towers of Angkor Wat symbolizing the peaks of Mount Maru, uh, which, according to Hindu mythology, is the dwelling place of the gods. And uh, uh, Angkor Wat is something I kind of want to revisit again, not like physically fly out there, which was an amazing journey to get out there, by the way. Uh, something I'll never forget. Uh, but uh, it was it was like going it was like a day's journey down a river. It reminded me of Apocalypse Now. I mean, it was so epic. Um, but, uh, just, you know, trying to figure out when was Angkor Wat truly built, you know, who built it. You see this, the ancient tech you see all over with the millennial kingdom tech, just very interesting. Uh, now here, this is the, uh, the moon map. I'm sorry for those of you who are completely lost right now. Uh, this is taken off from the moon. I believe that our greater realm is shown on the moon. Um, and, uh, the, 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 map is tried and true. It is amazing. If nobody, if you haven't looked into it, please look into it. And, uh, so the reason I'm showing this here is this is, uh, a, a Lemuria. Uh, this is the, you know, the Lemurians, the famous, they went to war with the Atlanteans, epic mythology. Uh, I believe it was history. And this, you can see right here, uh, North and South America on the moon, you see Russia, China, Asia, India, all right over here. You see Australia, and yet there's this huge continent here that is gone. And, um, you know, some people think Eden was out in the Philippines. It could be. Um, but, you, you know, you see this huge land there. This is right where Lemuria is supposed to be. It's no longer there. Um, so was this where Eden was? Was this to the furthest east of the earth, uh, beyond which was the hidden wilderness? Um, don't really know. Just want to throw that in there. So I'm saying that this is where Mount Maru could have been. And I, I know there's a lot of other people speculating that too. I th I've seen some people put it like into the ocean right here between Lemuria and uh, China and India, uh, claim that it was in there, that it sunk or was taken up. It was a fertile place for out of the ground grew every kind of tree that was good for food and every tree that was pleasant to the sight. Wow, sounds just like Moses, doesn't it? Every herb that could be eaten and every herb that flowered was there. The tree of life, which was called Lyser, having leaves of gold and copper, was within the sacred enclosure. The sacred enclosure is where uh, the gods came down, or Allah Hayam. There, too, was the great tree of wisdom, bearing the fruits of knowledge, granting the choice and ability to know the true from the false. It is the same tree which can be read as men read a book. I think maybe that's a reference to Moses. I'm not really sure. There also was the tree of trespass beneath which grew the lotus of rapture. And in the center was the place of power where Allah Hayam made his presence known. Time passed and the children of Allah Hayam were grown strong and upright under the tempering hammer of Allah Hayam. Of course, the tempering hammer would be a reference to the actual way the earth was designed to you know, refine man uh, and earth, the anvil of Allah Hayam. So there you go, right? It's the, the earth is the anvil of the Most High. And, of course, the, the Bible also refers to it as his footstool. Uh, became more uh, kindly. All was pleasant and food plentiful, but life uh, pales in such places, for it is against the nature of man to flourish in these circumstances. It means they were getting fat on the lands and they were not being refined. Earth is not for pleasurable dallying. It is a place of teaching, trial, and testing. 
The children of Allahayam were not yet the heirs of Allahayam, nor inheritors of godhood. But there was one among them who had almost completed the pilgrimage of uh, Inid Vedu, and this is where I put the Celtic word for karma. So this is, I told you at the beginning, there's, you're going to see a composite of Adam and two different people. And this is the first uh, composite of Adam. He had unraveled the tangled uh, skins of or skeins of fate and traversed the tumultuous seas of life to the many ports of destiny. And having paid the depths of sowing and reaping was one triumphant over the, you know, Edin Vadu. Uh, his name was Fanvar. He was Fanvar's son of Alma and Atim. So, you know, I I'm kind of curious. If we're going to go through different names of people and i'm actually really curious if these are they're actually they don't really say it but they might be talking about the gods all right uh the, the, the and this is according to this text mind you i'm not saying this is the way it was so nobody needs to freak out but i'm kind of thinking that like these are like different gods having children and so these two would be like divine type of spirits maybe alma and atom i'm not really sure and they had fanbar like i said composite of adam he was wise and knew all things. He beheld mysteries and the secret things hidden from the eyes of other men. He saw sunrise and the sun setting in their splendor, but longed for things not realizable in the place where he lived. So he's so whereas most men look at the sunrise and the sunset and they kind of just succumb to that, they worship that. He's looking at it and looking beyond that, right? So because he walked with Allah Hayam, remember Adam walked with Elohim. He was called out from his kind and brought to Maru, Meruah, the garden place. All right. Now, remember, Adam was the same thing. He was created outside of the garden, and he came into it. Now, uh, I'll, I'll finish this paragraph before I comment more on it. He came to it across the mountains and wastelands. So he journeyed a long ways to get to Eden, arriving after many days' journey. Weary and close to death because of the private uh, privations he suffered, he could just reach the refreshing waters from which he drank deeply and filled with exhaustion. He slept in his sleep. This, this is like stunningly beautiful right here uh, or stunningly haunting, maybe hauntingly beautiful. I like that better in his sleep. He dreamed. And this was the matter of his dreaming. He saw before him a being of indescribable glory and majesty who said, I am the Allah above all. Even above the Allah of your people, I am that which fulfills the aspirations of men, and I am that in which they are fulfilled. You, having traversed all the circles of uh, Inedvadu and established your worthiness, are now made my governor on earth. Remember now, that's what Adam was, right? He was a representative. He was a priest and king over the earth, a representative. So if he fell, then humanity fell with him. And you shall rule all things here, guiding them in my ways, leading them ever upwards into glory. This will be your labor. And behold, here is your reward. Okay, so now, uh, remember now, remember when Adam went into the garden and there was nobody like him, right? And so he made a helpmeet for him. So here is his reward. A cloud mist seemed to gather about the glorious being and folding him so he was no longer visible. Then the mist gradually cleared. And the man saw another form emerging. It was that of a woman, but one such as Fanvar had never seen before. 
beautiful beyond his conception of beauty with such perfection of form and grace that he was dumbfounded. Like, okay, he's seeing like, you know, Eve here, right? According to, you know, the composite image, right, of the Bible. And he's just like, he has no words. And people, you know, they used to make fun, you know, laugh at the fact that she's called woman because he's like, you know, he's like, whoa, you know. And uh, kind of like Keanu Reeves or something like that. Like he has no words to describe how beautiful this woman is. Yet the vision was not substantial. She was a wraith, okay, a wraith. Like think of Lord of the Rings, the ring wraiths. She was a spirit, an ethereal being. So she pre-existed. That shouldn't surprise anybody, right? If if we get into pre-existence, then even Adam and Eve would have pre-existed, even before she came out of the rib. The man awoke, and but she she seems to be like a high, you know, a very very important ethereal uh, being up in the up in the ether, under the firmament. The man awoke and sought food from the fruits about him, and having refreshed himself, wandered about the garden. Wherever he went, he saw the wraith, but was unafraid because she smiled encouragingly, bringing comfort to his heart. So this wraith, this this woman, uh, is greatly in love with him. And she wants to, you know, she wants to incarnate or incarnate or manifest and become his wife, his woman, his, uh, his partner. He built himself a shelter and grew strong again, but always wherever he went, the wraith was not far distant. Quite the love story here. One day near the, this is like totally epic right here. I think you guys are going to like this. One day near the edge of the garden, he fell asleep in the heat of the day. And awoke to find himself surrounded by the sons of both us. Not true men, but yoslings. All right, now who are these yoslings? We're going to come to find out a little bit more about them in a little bit. But these yoslings uh, are not supposed to be in the garden. We know this. They lived outside the garden. They are invading the garden. They want to take the garden over. They are kinsfolk to the beast of the forest. So they're, they kind of look like men, but they're not men. They're beasts. I'll tell you right now what I think they are. I think they're the wild men, the Sasquatch. It's like a bunch of Sasquatch came in and attacked. Before they could take his strength and wisdom, he lost himself among them, slaying some in his rage and might before the rest ran away. When it was done, he sat himself down beneath a great tree for he was wounded and blood gushed out from his side and gathered thickly beside him. So he went to combat with these guys. They gave him a beating, but he gave him a bigger thrashing. He became faint, falling into a deep sleep. And while he slept, a wondrous thing happened. The wraith came and lay beside him, taking blood from his wound. So remember, his he, his side was opened up, Adam, and from his rib, right? Uh, taking blood from his womb upon herself, so congealed about her. Thus, the spirit being became clothed with flesh, born of congealing blood, and being sundered from his side, she rose a mortal woman. So in this story too, she comes from his side that was opened up. And she's now, this is now the composite image of, of Eve, Chua, Heva. In his heart, Fan, uh, Fanvar was not at rest because of her likeness. But she was, so, I mean, since he's not at rest around her, she's keeping him on his toes. I mean, she's like, like just, you know, the complete total, like, platonic idea of beauty incarnate right and it, so much so that he he can't even can't even rest around her it's just it's like too much for him but she was gentle 
ministering to him with uh, solicitude and being skillful in the ways of healing, she made him whole. Therefore, when he had grown strong again, he made her queen of the garden land. So he's king, she's queen. And she was so called even by our fathers who named her Gula, but uh, Feinvar called her Ama, meaning helpmate. There it is again. In our tongue, she is called the, 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 I think it's supposed to be the lady, even though it says the fady, but the lady of Fanvi. Now, Alahayam enlightened Fingvar concerning the woman, saying, This woman was drawn from her compatible abode in the realm of beauty through the yearning aspirations of men. So, one of the themes all throughout uh, the Colbrin is that, uh, you know, it's very platonic. And keep in mind that Plato, you know, they, it's coming more to light that he actually ripped off his idea from the Druids, all right? Uh, and the Druids, of course, I've shown you the, the breakroom trail where the Yahudim at one time, but um, and in turn, maybe even the sons of Seth. But uh, the idea is the, the, the realm of beauty is beyond the firmament in heaven, that it cannot penetrate this earth. Right, that it's it's hidden through a glass darkly, that everything in this creation came manifest originally from the divine, from our father. It all came from him, but it, it nothing in this world can really truly describe what he looks like, who he is, right? They're all descriptions of him, but they're not him, even though they come from him. Well, this says here that she came from the realm of beauty. So, like in the truest platonic sense, she is beauty incarnate. She has penetrated the veil and come down and become a woman. Her coming accomplishes something which would otherwise have taken countless generations. Remember how they were talking about what, what I said, micro evolution, right? How so it's saying here to achieve this kind of beauty on a micro evolution scale, it would have taken countless generations. But boom, it just shows up. For Earth is more fitting for men to learn manly things than for women to learn womanly ones, right? So they're saying that as the natural course of things that this, you know, men are called like cavemen for a reason, right? Uh, that, you know, the the harshness of this world, it it's more intended for men. And yet the beauty of women human women seems to go against what we see in nature. I mean, think about it, right? I mean, you go to the zoo, you look at the, the women animals. There's something about human women that transcends completely different than all the other women uh, or females on this earth. And, um, and that's saying here that this originated through this, this woman, uh, came down through her. This woman is not as other women being in no way like yourself. Every hair of her head is unlike that of a man. Every drop of blood and every particle of flesh is that of a woman and quite unlike that of a man. So <laughs> for all the uh, the confused sexes out there today, a man is a man and a woman is a woman. They're quite different. Her thoughts and desires are different. She is neither coarse nor uncouth, being altogether of another more refined realm. So isn't that interesting? It's saying that women come from like, they originate like the... the womanness that and this is where we come into the the feminine sacred divine the ruach Hakadesh is feminine right comes from the higher realm and that's the whole idea that uh, and we've so really suppressed this what it you know what a true woman is supposed to be but i i love this whole passage how it's saying a true human woman that the characteristic of a woman what makes her woman comes from the highest realm of heaven uh that you know man looks up to it but the woman came down to us so there's your uh <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm over there. There's your space, you know, the, the spaceship of just coming out all like women, astro, you know, uh, women aliens, right? Uh, her thoughts and desires are different. She is neither coarse nor, okay, I read all that. Um, okay. Uh, let's see, more refined realm. Her daughters will walk proudly endowed with every womanly perfection and grace. Delicacy, modesty, and charm will be the lovely jewels enhancing their womanliness. Henceforth, man will be truly man and woman will be truly woman. Men being girded with manliness and women clothed with womanliness. And it's interesting here, it's saying that, you know, this was the first true woman that came along. I don't know, maybe the women before this were kind of dwarfish women. I don't know, like very hairy women. I don't really know. But it, it actually says here that from this woman, man was truly man moving forward, right? Because now he has his true woman counterpart. Uh, and the way she appeared, like, remember last week when I read about uh, the the songs and the vibrations that created the material realm? And I it all emanated from the father of Ruakoth, uh, the, the great divine, the unknowable divine. And how I said that it reminded me of the song Good Vibrations. And you remember in the song Good Vibrations, Brian Wilson is talking about like this, almost like this divine woman, like a vision of a rapturous vision of this woman that peers through these good vibrations. You get the same thing here with this, this first woman that she like, she came from the, 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 the song, the vibrations of father. He, escorted her down and he's seeing this you know glorious vision of her and then she becomes reality it just it reminds me of the song good vibrations this whole thing yet they shall walk together hand in hand towards the ascending glory before them each the helpmate and inspiration of the other i was asked earlier tonight about you know my thoughts on uh on women uh that's a scary thought to ask me my thought on women, but like this explains it right here. The, the woman was coming, came as man's helpmeet. She came from above down to earth to help man uh, reach his highest potential, which was returning to his status as a son of Elohim. That is a true woman of Elohim or Alahayam's uh, aspiration and goal. It is not to, you know, take the place of man. It's recognizing that they are hand in hand. They are equal. She's from his side, but they are different. They are not the same. A man is not a woman and a woman is not a man. And for a man to be a woman or a woman to be a man, that's just unnatural. It's not the way it's intended to be. And I, I was explaining how the, whenever I bring up like the sacred feminine divine, you know, people's like new age alarms start blaring in their head going off, you know, like, you know, watch out. Because they get this picture of this like hippie liberal feminist woman who has a very distorted, you know, they, they worship this feminine divine, but they have a very distorted view. I mean, if you want to, they, they have this idea that the, the, the feminine divine has been oppressed and which is true. And, but they would say that it hasn't come and infiltrated this world quite yet. Well, it, it did happen. It happened in the age of Pisces. Uh, the age of Pisces, of course, is a fish. But there's a two fish, the masculine and the feminine. One was Yehusha HaMashiach. The other was the Ruach HaKadosh. The Ruach HaKadosh came down to earth, exploded over the Goyim, uh, through the Hebrews into the Goyim. And that is the feminine divine right there, right? So you see the masculine with Yahuwah and the feminine with the uh, Ruach HaKadosh. Uh, and they are, it, it's it's kind of like, now keep in mind that the Ruach HaKadosh is the helpmeet of uh, Allah Hayam, subservient to Allah Hayam, serves Allah Hayam, is here to point the way to 
Yehusha HaMashiach and ultimately to al see how that works? That's the woman's purpose here. And it's it's like a waltz. If you find a man and a woman in a waltz together, you know that the man is leading, at least you would assume the man is leading, but and the woman is following, but if they are in step together, you can't tell who, which is leading not because they're in perfect step together. And that should be a man and woman hand in hand uh, working towards the, the union of Ruakoth. Uh, in eternity. So Fanvar and Arua lived in contentment amid bounty and fruitfulness with freedom from afflictions and sickness. Sounds like Adam and Eve, right? They, I, I keep saying that, but they delighted in each other and because of their differences were drawn closer together. Isn't that awesome? They delighted in each other and because of their differences, they were completely different. Opposites attract. They were drawn closer together. It's it's one of those things I think about a lot. I, I've said this before that I came, I've been married now 22 years and I came to this realization. Uh, it was almost like a gnosis. I came to it a couple of years ago, probably when we were married about 20 years. And it hit me that the things that like just rub me the wrong way about my wife, the things that just really just like, you know, irk me. And, it, and fact of the matter is guys, every married couple here, you look at your spouse and there's something about them. You're just like, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. But I finally realized that because I, you know, I, I loved my wife and I loved who she was. And I realized that those things made her who she was, like the complete picture. And it gave me this new understanding of, you know, that, you know, being drawn to the thing that is very different from who I am. I mean, you, if anyone has met my wife, we are completely different, night and day difference. Um, and, um, but that's great to see this with this couple too, that they're, that recognizing how different they are actually drew them closer together. Uh, Arua brought, but one thing with her when she crossed the misty frontier, the treasure of Lanved, the jewel contained in the moon chalice, the stone of inspiration fashioned by the desires of men. Now, the mistake I made this week as I was preparing this is that I was thinking, my audience knows all my research on the moon and how the moon is a representation of Eve or Hava and the sun is Adam and that the moon uh, faded in its glory because of this, uh, because it, the moon is a Ruach and the moon sinned, the moon transgressed at the time that uh, Chua, uh, Heva, Eve uh, sinned with the serpents, uh, had, you know, intercourse and had the seed of Satan. Uh, King, um, but it, I should have added some of the scriptures just so the the audience that may be coming in here or hearing this for the first time could see the connection. But it's really interesting that we see her connected with the moon. That there's something about with this moon chalice and this they talk about it, the, the dew or whatever. It, it it's interconnected, even in the story. So they're recognizing. I think that the the man is you know the sun, the woman, the moon. Never owned by any but the daughters of Rua. This the Linjal Arua gave to Fanvar as her dowry and her pledge of purity and exclusiveness. So something very special came, this moon chalice, and it, it passed down through her daughters, being feminine. She followed the ways of the cradle end, not the ways of the earth. So the cradle end, uh, as far as my understanding goes, would be the, you might say, the sea of souls, the place where the where we originated from that was our cradle, right? Like the baby in the cradle, 
And so this would be in the platonic idea, the higher world of forms, the heavens, uh, where she originated from the cradle and she brought that down with her and she wasn't the ways of the earth. Within the gardenland was the sacred enclosure, the domain of Fainvar and Arua, forbidden to those of the children of Alahayam who had now come to this place. So they're saying that there's others coming into it, but they're still the caretakers. They're the only ones that can go into this place. It contained the chalice of fulfillment. And by the way, so this again, so for anyone here who thinks Adam and Eve were naked, I have gone over this so many times. There's, they were not naked. Um, it, it, it's, we're trained to think they were, and it's what we carry in our, our preconceived notions. But when you understand what it's talking about, they would be, they, it says they would leave their father and mother and they would be naked and unashamed. All right. Now that's maybe not a word for word. I'm paraphrasing, uh, but it's, it's because they were unashamed when they were naked together as opposed contrasted when they were naked and shamed together at the instance with the serpent. All right. So it means they were clothed with the Ruach HaKadosh and then those clothes came off. Uh, all right. It contained the chalice of fulfillment, granting any who drink from it, the realization of all things to which they aspired. Kind of interesting. None might drink from this, save Fainvar and Arua. So they're the only two that they, they could have this wisdom of like all knowledge, right? And they were to govern humanity. So they needed to have all the mysteries of heaven. They needed to get it all. Also, there was the cauldron of immortality containing an essence distilled from the fruits growing in the garden. Sounds amazing. And this guarded against mortal ills. All right. So when you get to Revelation and it talks about during the millennial kingdom and the kings of the earth are going to the tree of life and they are getting the leaves that are they're making into like a medicine for the health of the nation of the nations. Right. So the nations are still getting sick. So th this it was the same thing here. Arua brought forth his son by Fainbar and he was called uh, Rautoki. Now, this is where it separates. Okay, so I told you they're composites, but this is, I, I was looking at this. I don't think this is either Seth, Abel, or Cain. Uh, maybe I'd have to think about it more, but they have a son named Rautoki and a daughter who is called Armina. Now, if you read uh, First Adam and Eve, they do talk about how uh, Cain uh, had a twin sister um, uh, her name was Lulua. And I mean that Lulua was actually, believe it or not, more beautiful than her mother. I'm not saying this is the same people. Each knew the mysteries of magic and the ways of the stars. Now, the word magic here, I think, um, that's going to be another, you know, alarm for some people. Um, it, it could be if it's magic, like witchcraft. Yeah, that's evil. I don't. I do not think that that is what's being uh, motioned here. I, I almost think it. It's a. This is almost like the understanding of of the natural realm. Uh, in such a way that using it seems like, you know, you've heard this before, seems like like modern science seems like magic, right? Like computers, you know, airplanes, that kind of stuff, right? The amazing things we can do. We've learned how to use nature, which is something that has been commanded for us to do to understand nature. I kind of think that's what's happened. The mysteries of magic and the ways of the stars. They're reading the stars. They're understanding that, you know, just like it says in Genesis, the stars were put there to understand the times, the seasons. 
In the fullness of time, Ratuki married among the daughters of the sons of Allahayam and had two sons, uh, Inanari and Ninduka. It was Inanari who first taught the weaving of cloth and plants, and Ninduka was a mighty hunter. Arme this almost sounds, sounds like the sons of uh, Cain at this point. Armina also married among the sons of Allahayam and brought forth a son who was called Belinki and daughters called Anu Ananua and Mamita. Ananua knew the making of pots and things of clay and Mamita the taming of beasts and birds. Ninduka had two sons, Natara and Canaan. That's interesting, Canaan, which I think you could find in Cain's uh, 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 line, I believe. Namtara had two sons also, Ninduka and Nadam. Why did I put that in green there? Well, Nadam is Adam, all right? So that's the second Adam in here, right? There's two that are composite of Adam. This is the second one. Before dying in the fullness of manhood, the Linky married in, in Diva and had a son called Inkidua, which is interesting because there's an Inkidu in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and he was a wild man. And I'm not saying they're the same person. It's just the name is similar. And a daughter called Istarte, meaning maid of the morning. And she became a great teacher among the children of Alahayam. This was the Istarte who became the first moon maiden, being later called Lady of the Morning Star. Inkidua had a daughter. And her name was Meva. Uh, uh, and this would be Eve. Okay. Do you see the Eve in there, Eva? Outside the sacred enclosure known as Gisar, but forming a gateway into it was a circular structure of stones called Gilgal. And within this was a shrine wherein was kept a sacred vessel called Winduva. This was like a goblet and was made of rainbow-hued crystal set in gold with pearls. Above the cup appeared a shimmering moon-colored mist like a thin cold flame. At certain times when the heavens were in a proper position, the Quinduva was filled with moondew and port and potions from the cauldron within the sacred enclosure, making a pale honey-colored liquor, and this the people drank from the goblet. However, there were different uh, proportions in the vessel for those of the blood of Fainvar and Arua, and those who were children of Allah Hayam, but not of their blood. It was a potion from the Gwinduva, which kept sickness and disease away from those who drank it. I wish I had more time to study all that in the names. Sorry, I, I did not. Dadam, the first father. So that's really interesting right here. So this is where it's like, why did they call Dadam or Adam the first father? Because I thought there were other fathers before this. But look who he married. Letha. There's your Lilith right there. There she is. I couldn't believe it. I Like one of the my fall out of my chair moments. There's Lilith. Uh, Adam marries, the first father marries Lilith, Letha. And they had a, a son called Perthu. Dadam then married Meva, Eve. Okay, so he had Lilith first for a while. I, you know, I've done, I wrote a, a paper on this and I haven't presented it yet. And um, I'm kind of glad I did it because now I want to add this information. And because I knew Lilith was uh, the, the Hebrew word for night and that Lilith was a kind of a night spirit, a wraith. I think maybe uh, Letha was maybe a type of wraith here too. Who knows? Uh, and that she was a um, a dryad, a, a tree spirits in uh, uh, Babylonian um, text, and that in the Hebrew culture they claimed that she was the uh, the first wife of Adam. 
I had those claims and I wasn't really sure where, where to find them. And here we have right here in an Egyptian text saying that the dam, the, the dam, the first father married Letha. And they had a, okay. And Dadan then married Meva, who had a daughter, not by him. What? Remember now, uh, according to the serpent seed idea, uh, according to Aramaic Targum and others, that Eve or uh, uh, Heva's uh, first child was a, was a son, a Cain, but it was not through Adam. It was through the serpents. So we see something very similar here. We see the serpent seed happening, not by him. So she had a um, an affair. And this was Gweneva, the Kaku child fathered by Abramanid of Gwarthon, son of Namtinigal, the Yosling. I put in the Yosling, whom we call Luid the Dark Father. What? So she fathered a child through a Yosling, who, according to this, is a type of wild man. I don't think they've really described him yet. Uh, and uh, Luid the Dark Father was his name. And remember, the Yoslings were the ones trying to break into the garden land of which uh, had to be defended. About the land of the children of Allahayam was the wasteland where Yoslings, okay? So remember, she fathered a, she, I mean, uh, Meva uh, had a child through one of these Yoslings. And they were called the children of Zumat. And these Yoslings lived all around the garden. And they always try to break in and enter, right? They made war with them, which means they who inherit death. So these creatures are they who inherit death. And that's where they dwelt. Amongst these, Namtenegol, the wily hunter. That's kind of interesting that it, it refers to him as a hunter because that was the spirit of Nimrod, of, of Cain, of, um, or some of his descendants of, uh, of uh, Esau. Uh, Namtenegol, the wily hunter was the most wise and cunning, and he alone was unafraid of the children of Allah Hayyam, and he alone dared enter the garden land. So now this is really interesting uh, because Hasatan, we know that uh, there was this serpents. Now, you know, Satan, can uh, uh, there can be many Satans, right? Uh, Satan is a title. It's not necessarily a, an entity, but we know that there was these serpents. And in Revelation, we learned that that serpent is the dragon. Well, the only reference to dragons that I can find are seraph angels, seraphim. Seraphim are serpentine creatures. They're the fiery serpents. They're where we get the uh, the uh, reptilians uh, that are ruling over this earth. Those are the, the seraph angels. And so I'm always under the impression that Hasatan is a seraph angel. Now, there's uh, John, if you're listening to this, uh, he he constantly trying to tell me that he believes Hasatan is a beast creature, that he was actually not created by Allah Hayyam, that he was actually created by uh, the angels, the fallen angels. Well, I'm going to give you a case tonight uh, where this Hasatan creature, this Yasling, the serpent, uh, is was in fact maybe created by the fallen angels, the Anunnaki. All right, so we'll get there tonight. Now, here's a picture here of the wild men. And it's interesting that uh, I guess these are, well, they don't have boobs. I don't mean to be crude, but there's a lot of the medieval artwork showing female wild men. They, they show breasts. These do not. But they're, it, this is kind of interesting because you see these ladies, they're kind of making a show out of it. I don't know if they're mocking them, but they're trying to cultivate these wild men and put dresses on them and give them a bath, right? 
Um, now here we see a wild man. Uh, looks like he has killed all these knights. And there's another knight confronting him in the woods, trying to uh, fight him. And we, I, I could, you know, I have pages worth of artwork. I'm not going to show you all this, but we see this in a lot of medieval texts. See these wild men that are constantly snatching women. And then here comes a knight to confront. He's stabbing this one who's taking this woman. She seems pretty happy that the knights come to rescue her. Uh, this one's getting pierced in the heart. He's picked up a club. And this woman seems pretty grateful over that. So you get this idea that there were these, it sounds just like the Yoslings. And they're coming and they're trying to snatch women. And the men are trying to defend them. In the days when Estartha was teaching, uh, Naptenegol often came to hear her words. Now, I, I think, I think if, I, if I'm not mistaken, he is one of the Yoslings. And he's coming uh, to hear the teachings of the children of Allah Hayam. And the, uh, and the children of Allah Hayam were not displeased for teaching the wild men about them was a duty with which they had been charged. So you see that the children of Allah Hayam are trying to teach the surrounding Yoslings, these wild men, uh, these Sasquatch-like creatures, uh, that, you know, about the ways of Allah Hayam. Um, and I should probably mention, too, that these wild men uh, could appear appear and disappear. Uh, they could materialize and they could become spirit creatures. And we see that uh, elsewhere in the Colburn. Uh, it'll be the next book if we ever get to it, uh, where one of the wild men uh, appears and disappears. Namtenegol, therefore, participated in the rites, but could not partake of their elixir from the because this was forbidden. While it gave health and strength to the children of Allah Hayam, safeguarding them from the sicknesses of the Yoslings, if given to others, it caused a wasting away. So these Yoslings appeared to be um, almost like these evil spirit type creatures that were causing the sicknesses. Uh, but the Yoslings themselves couldn't drink from it and they would start to waste away. It was altogether forbidden for any of the children of Allah Hayam to mate with the Yoslings. So now we see that these, these uh, wild men could mate with people. And, of course, we saw that uh, the Mava character did. She mated with one of them. For this was deemed to be the most unforgivable of sins. All right, so now I'm quoting from the, um, the Lost Book of Inki. In this Lost Book of Inki, I can't remember the guy's name. Um, and, you know, the, the ancient alien crowd loves this guy. He's, he's taking these ancient Sumerian tablets, and he's... Translating them, and this is one where I told you Michael Heiser uh, was basically just taking these texts and proving that he's trying to make the Copernican revolution work, the Copernican universe. And he's like, no, 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 dude, it was it was a flat, motionless plane under a firmament, even the Sumerian text. You can't work that in there. So but that being said that, you know, uh, it seemed like that was his big criticism of these translations. So in, this Inky character we see here was uh hopefully my eyes hold up tonight i'm getting pretty tired this enki character was um one of the anunnaki all right and the anunnaki are trying to create their own creatures and this is ancient history here this is not a lot of people are saying this was the watchers um i actually do not believe this was the watchers of enoch that this was an incursion i think the the watchers of enoch was a cyclical incursion that it happened before in history and i think it happened again after the flood and i think it's act actually happening now today it's just a, a cyclical thing that happens. So anyways, they're, they're trying to figure out what to do. And they say, a solution is possible, Inky was saying. Let us create a Lulu, a primitive worker. So these Lulus, I believe, are the Yoslings. 
And I also believe these Lulu and Yasins are uh, wild men or Sasquatches. Uh, the hardship work to take over, let the being, the toil of the Anunnaki carry on his back, right? So the Anunnaki are the same as the Watchers. They're this um, angelic creature that have fallen and have that have betrayed and ultimately turned their back on Yahuwah and Allah Hayam. Astounded were the besieged leaders, speechless indeed they were. Whoever heard of a being a fresh created, a worker who the Anunnaki's work can do. So they created these creatures to... to work the earth for them. They summon Nin Ninma, one who of uh, healing and secor was much knowing. Inky's words to her, they repeated. Okay, let me just skip all this for sake of time. Um, I want to see this down here at the bottom. With astonishment, did the other leaders Inky's words here? Okay, so I skipped the whole speech. By the words, they were fascinated. Creatures in the Abzu there are, Inky was saying, they walk erect on two legs. Their forelegs they use as arms. With hands they are provided. And you remember when we read about the the highwayman who had no arm, I mean, he had no hands, no mouth, but he walked erect, erect. I don't know if that was another creation of the Anunnaki. Um, but uh, the, the writer of this book obviously didn't know, but he believed that they existed at one time. Among the animals of the of the steep they live, they know not. Dressing in garments, so they go around naked, just like the Sasquatch. They or the wild men. They eat plants with their mouths. They drink water from lake and ditch. Shaggy with hair is their whole body. Their head hair is like a lion's. With gazelles, they jostle with teeming creatures in the waters. They delight, and so they 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 live with the animals of, of the woods. You see them with deer and other things like that. They're kind of care, they're kind of caretakers of the forest. Um. And by the way, I do believe that these creatures are redeemable, and we see that in here. Where it was, it was the job of the sons of Allahim to redeem them or to teach them righteousness. So, this idea that we're like, oh, they're just demons and stuff. It's like, well, no, you can, you can actually teach uh, the gospel to all creation, including you could preach it to the spirits as well. I'm not saying invite them into your house. But they can be redeemed. I really do believe that. I believe it's very possible that some of the 70 Elohim, uh, Allah Hayam, who rule over there, some of them might be redeemed. Um, I don't believe redemption is past anybody. All right. To the house of life, Inky led them. In strong cages, there, there were some of the beings at the side of Inky. So they're in cages. At the side of Inky and the others, they jumped up with fists on the cage bars. They were beating. They were grunting and snorting. No words were they speaking. Male and female, they are. And they basically, yeah, they go from there. They learn speech and so on and so forth. All right. Getting back to the uh, book of creation. I need a drink of water. Now, the wily one learned much from Istart, uh, Istartha. Remember, Istartha is one of the daughters of Allah Hayam, and she's teaching this Yosling. And in the fullness of time, brought his own son to her, and he became as her son living in her house and forsaking the ways of his people. So it sounds almost like an Eden uh, situation or something like that, where it's like, you know, somebody from a different race decides to, uh, maybe a good example would be like if you read the writings of Abraham, which I've covered, and some of the sons of Nimrod, uh, who were the line of Ham, line of uh, Cain ultimately, they actually chose to live a righteous life. And so you're seeing this here where they're trying to get these beast creatures to actually choose righteousness, choose Allah Hayam. Istartha called him Luid the Lightbringer. 
for it was her intention that he should be taught the ways of those who walked in light that he might in time enlighten his own people and you know you know we hear with Hasatan right that he's like the light bringer right you guys know what I mean by that uh, Lewid grew up tall and handsome he was quick to learn and became wise he was also a man of the chase strong and enduring a hunter of renown but there were times when the call of his people was strong then he would go out uh, furtively into the night to indulge in their dark rituals so he never really gave up the his uh, his spirit people. Uh, he went back in the night and took part, partook in their dark rituals, even though he was he was supposed to bring them the light. And he basically, you know, he betrayed uh, the sons of Allah Hayam who put their trust in him. Thus, he became knowledgeable in the ways of the flesh and in the carnal indulgences indulgences of the body. Now, Dadam, back to Adam became a servant of the sacred enclosure. We know this. Oh, so uh, again, he becomes it. So there was, according to this, even though it's, it calls him the first father, I, I'm a little confused by that because I'm like, wasn't there a father before him? But maybe they are the same people. Maybe they're just a different name, the composite. I don't really know. Uh, maybe uh, more readings of this will enlighten me as I go over it again. Dadan became a servant of the sacred enclosure where the misty veil between the realms could be penetrated. How awesome is that? So this is Mount Maru, remember? And the, the penetration of heaven and earth together, you could you could transverse at the same time. For all those having the blood of Arua had twin sights. Mm, twin sight. Almost like the doppelgangers I've been talking about. An ability to see wraiths and Sith folk. That word Sith right there is interesting because it reminds me of uh, uh, Star Wars, right? That You had the Jedi and the Sith the Sith folk, uh, Anzis and spirit beings, all the things of the other world, not clearly, but as through a veil. Beside the place called Gisar was a pleasant parkland with trees of every kind and a stream, also thickets of flowering bushes and all manner of plants growing lushly. It was the custom of Meva, remember this is the wife of Dadam, to wander there in the sunshine and Luid, oh, here he is, the Yosling, who's trying to be the light bringer. And Luid also went there. So it came about that they met among the trees. And there they are in the trees together. Meva knew the man, but had shunned him in the past. And that's one of the things I get with like the conversation, like the way it's written in Genesis. I always felt like for a long time, like it wasn't their first conversation. I just really feel that way. Like they, they, had, they had talked in the past. Now she saw he was handsome, uh-oh, possessed of many attractions. So her foot was uh, stayed, and she did not run away. She should have fled back to her, her man, the guardian of the forest, and she did not. She kept talking to him. As the days passed, they dallied longer together, and Lewis, so again, so this, according to this, this is a long temptation. It's not over just like within like five minutes of dialogue, like it's over a long time. It, it, how many affairs start, right? You're, you know, she never probably saw herself going in that direction originally. Like she never imagined she would end up there, but she didn't uh, stand her guard and she allowed herself to go down that conversational path. And Lewid talked of things Mava had not heard before. Uh-oh. Well, that's interesting since they were able to, uh, you know, know everything, right? She and her husband, as the king and queen, were able to drink from, you know, what, what, whatever that was, where they would know all the mysteries of heaven. And yet, just like the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Uh, Lewid 
knew of some things that she's like, wow, I'm not as divine as I thought I was. I could truly be divine now if I listen to this guy, right? She feels a stirring in her blood that did not respond or heed his temptations because of the things that were forbidden. So Lewid went to the moon mother, wise woman of the Oslings, and telling of his desires, beseeched her to help him. The moon mother gave him two apples containing a vile substance, which they had drawn through their stalks. This Lewid gave to Mava, who then became helpless in his hands. So it's interesting this is two apples. And now I, I am of the belief that, you know, it was not apples. It was grapes. It was actually a, a, a grape that would, became an instantaneous uh, fermented wine. Uh, we get that from Third Baruch. We get that from um, Aramaic Targum. We get that from a few different sources, actually. Uh, I think also from, uh, oh, yeah, the uh, Apocalypse of Abraham he talks about that. Uh, but it's interesting to hear that she became helpless in his hands. So she was like putty in his hands. Like she, she was, uh, I think, intoxicated. And they talk about even here that they, you know, it was some substance that they put in these apples. It's almost like the Snow White story, right? They met again. They met again after this, for Mava became enamored towards Lewid, but it happened that she became ill with a strange sickness and was afraid. Then Dadam became ill, and Lewid also. And Lewid said to the woman, you must obtain the pure essence from within the sacred enclosure. And Setana, the moon mother, that's kind of an interesting name. It, it reminds me of like uh, Satanael. Satina, 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 it sounds a lot like Satan, actually. The moon mother will prepare an elixir which will cure us. This he said because none of his kind had ever been able to obtain the sacred substances, though they had always coveted what had been denied them. It's almost like, like if you're transfer back to the Genesis story, it's almost like Hasatan's trying to get to the tree of life, right? He's been, he's been, um, maybe he's been neglected it and remember they were adam and eve were not allowed to to take from the tree of life because then they would live forever now because of her frailty the woman was pliable in his hands and lewid seized the opportunity to achieve his ends lewid gave mava a potion which had been prepared by the moon mother and she administered this to dadam and those with him by guile and deceit so that they fell asleep while they slept mava stole from the sacred substances and took them to lewid who gave them to the moon mother and she made a brew. So she, she is not only tricking her husband, she's, you know, tricking other people as well, putting the sleep so she can go to steal and give something to a Yosling who has no business there. Part of this was given to Mava and the rest was drunk by the Yoslings for their awful uh, and ketol during their night rites. So they were going to do something evil with this during their night ceremonies. When the morning came, they were all smitten with grievous pains. It reminds me almost of like um, those who uh, take the mark of the beast and they're you know smitten with grievous sores, painful sores. You have to wonder if it's something similar. And before the sun set that day, all and I, I mean that spiritually, not uh, not necessarily physically, but something spiritual going on. And before the sun set that day, all the, the oslings were stricken with a sickness such as they had not known before. Mava took what had been given to her and, finding Dadam laid low in his bed, gave him a drought from her or drought from her vessel, though she had to use womanly wiles to get him to drink it. So she's uh, kind of seducing him to take it. She tricks him. She drank the remainder and they both slept. But when they awoke in the morning, both were suffering pains and this was something they had not known before. Interesting. They had never known pain before this. 
The Dom said to the woman, what have you done for what has happened to us cannot be unless the things which are forbidden have been done. The woman replied, Adonai, I was tempted and I fell. I have done that which is forbidden and unforgivable. The Dom said, I am bound by duty to do certain things, but first let us go into the Gizar, to the place called Bethkelchris, where I will seek enlightenment. So they went there together and stood before the shrine beneath the tree of wisdom. There they were filled with an inflowing vision, seeing themselves as they were and as they should have been, and they were ashamed. So this is kind of like they they recognize now in the Genesis story they're naked, right? They 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 should have been one thing and now they're another. He because he had not followed the proper path of a man, and she because of her falsity. So she, you know, she used her womanly beauty in a way that should not have been used to trick him and he you know uh he you know didn't maybe you could say he didn't guard i would say he didn't guard the commands obviously but there in the reflecting mist the contamination of the woman was revealed and the man's heart shriveled within him like a flower licked by flame then they saw a great spirit being materializing in the reflecting mist and he said to them Woe to you and your house, for the greatest of evils has befallen the race of the children of Allah Hayam, and it is defiled. The heritage of Kadam Hapa is lost. The fetid flow defiling the woman results from the incompatible intermingling. So right there, it's saying. Now, remember, in, um, in Genesis, uh, childbirth pains is a result of her sin. And as I pointed out, that it's a result of the adultery that there is a direct consequence with the sin, you know, or, or the results of the sin. And, and so they say the same thing here, the, the flow, right? So this is the monthly cycle. Defiling the woman, making her unclean, results from the incompatible intermingling and the adultery. But it is, so they don't even say here that they had intercourse, but obviously they did. Um, just like in the Bible, it doesn't straight up say they had intercourse, but it's it's there if you look for it. But it is not all, for sicknesses and diseases are also generating from the ferments of the impure implantation. Saddam said, the fault is with the woman, wherefore should I suffer? And, this, <laughs> and the spirit being replied, because you two are now as one. The cankerworms of disease and sickness strike both equally, but you shall not again defile this place. Henceforth, the misty veil becomes an impenetrable barrier serving, severing our two realms from each other so they can no longer be easily spanned. Between us, there will now be no means of communication. Henceforth, man and woman, fated to unite in love divine, shall be divided and set apart, though ever yearning reunion. It's almost straight out of Genesis, uh, right there. They may cleave one to the other, seeking the unity, which will rekindle the flame. But unless their efforts transcend the limitations of earthly things, they will be in vain. The spirit of man is now severed from the whole and cast again into unconsciousness. And it too shall long for union with the whole. Uh, and so the, I think the, the the being severed and cast into unconsciousness is our, is our basically our severing from our knowledge of heaven above, right? That there was a a union there in Maru uh, with man in heaven. The spark shall seek to return to the fire, which is what we all desire, right? There's a spark within us. We all desire to, uh, the idea of becoming a son of Elohim is that we're actually like a fire creature. We can actually go
go into the flames, the all-consuming fire of Allah Hayyam. For otherwise, it becomes nothing. And the idea is, is that the 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 impure, the sinners, the those who do not become the sins of Allah Hayyam, they are burned up in the all-consuming fire. Whereas the righteous will survive it. The web of fate is rewoven, re and the paths of destiny remade. The design of life is redrawn again. The progression begins in ignorance, birth and death, pain and pleasure, joy and sorrow, success and failure, love and hate, peace and war, all the lights and shade, the many hues making the splendidly intricate pattern of life on earth. So again, he's saying they're going, he's like, it's another reset. We're going right back again. Like you guys had all this illumination, all this knowledge. We're going right back to uh, your life begins in ignorance from your birth. Start again. Now you're going to have to work all the way through this again and rediscover the truth all over again. So all of us were born in total ignorance of our past. The spirit being continued, enough wickedness has been wrought by your willfulness and disobedience where the decrees forbidding certain things were for your own benefit. Immortality was nearly within your reach. But had you achieved this, you would have brought an even more grievous evil upon yourselves and your inheritors for freed from servitude to change you and they would have been unable to progress. Um, and, and this is where we're getting from the tree of knowledge, uh, not the tree of life, that they were separate. Uh, Adam and Eve were separated from the tree of life. It was, it was grace and mercy um, so that they would not live forever. And um, um, you know, they, yeah. Um, and I, in that way, I think death was, um, it was necessary, but it was also, it was also mercy. Uh, that they would not live in their the misery of their wickedness forever, like Hasatan. The children of Allah Hayam were driven out of the garden land by spirit beings. And then, and again, just reiterate, I know the Bible says Adam and Eve alone. This says there were more people with them. In this one, it's still the same, though, is that all these, all the children of Allah Hayam were, were, you know, based on the bad decision of the Adam character here, being their representative, they were all driven out. You know, take it for what it is, right? I hope, I hope you all brought your salt shakers with you. And then guardians were set at its gate so none could re-enter. And these guardians, of course, would be angels. Then it was withdrawn beyond the misty veil. So there goes Mount Maru. It, it becomes a mist. It disappears. It's lifted up. The water ceased to flow and the fertility departed. Only a wilderness remains. And so maybe you could argue that that was, uh, it could have been um, uh, Lumeria at that time before it was, or it could be talking about Mesopotamia. The children of Allah Hayyam went to dwell in the land of Ammonical, which is beyond the mountains of Mashur by the Sea of Dalamuna. I would love to know where that is, but we know that uh, the the sons of Seth, Seth and his sons, and Adam and, and Hava, they went, according to Christian and Hebrew text, uh, they went to the mountains where Yerushalayim is today in Israel and Yasharel. And actually by those texts, they talk about how even though uh, the Garden of Eden was in the Far East, that it actually kind of hovered above them right there in the, what's called the mountain of worship, and they could look up and see it. So um, according to that, if I were to combine both texts, you would say Mount Maru was taken up, it disappeared, but then it it followed them, the children of Allah Hayam, and they could see it. They could never re-enter it again, but they could see it from the mountain of worship. So that's how I take it. All the books I've read, that's, that's what I would, the conclusion I've come to. From this time onward, man fashioned his own spirit-likeness. 
Some who were loathsome in aspect, even unto themselves, went apart and were mercifully veiled in dark depths. And they said among themselves, let us dwell here in the darkness and prepare a place for others like ourselves, so that when they follow, they abide here and join us. Ugh. Doesn't sound like pleasant company. Thus were the dark regions formed and inhabited by demons who are not but the hideously fashioned spirits of evil men. Now, they, they kind of have this right, and I'd say maybe a little bit wrong here. Uh, we know that the demons are the disembodied spirits of the giant Nephilim, uh, who were the children of the watchers, the Anunnaki. Uh, maybe not so similar from the Oslings. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's, as I pointed out, there's many different classifications of spirits. Now, are there, are there some men who became demons, evil spirits? I would say yes. I've said that about Nimrod. I've said that about Gilgamesh. I've said that about Og. I, well, Og was Raphim. Uh, but I've said that about Cain, um, that uh, he uh, became an evil Ruakoth after the flood, uh, that he actually taught Ham. And uh, Ham might be an evil Ruakoth too. I don't know. He might still exist on this earth. And it has to do with their heritage too from the sons of Cain. These things have been written into the record. In, I guess, Siboites, they used to say this was the manner of man's making. Allah Hayam sent his creating craftsman spirit down to earth and the reflection of the one was drawn into the spiritless body and this became the heart of man these are the words written by thonis of mira and ludicia in his day so they're taking a conglomerate of different you know different ancient writings and putting them into this book you ask me what man is and i answer he is life becoming aware of itself he is the intangible knowing the tangible spirit and matter fire and water when this first happened, none remembers, and only the old folktales remain. There was the beginning and then the garden, and it was in the garden man found himself. Before this, he was not free, being one with everything about him. As he could not disobey, good and evil could not be. They were non-existent. That's kind of interesting. So there, that kind of answers the question for everyone because you're like, you know, you ask, well, like, was there sin? It's like, this is why... They call Dadam in here the first father. He's the father of all mankind. Even if he wasn't the first man, sin comes through him, right? Because he was the first to transgress in the garden. Before this, that they uh, they were just like uh, kind of one with the earth, like the animals. Uh, they were just men that existed, and they uh, they were neither good nor evil, right? I think I don't know. That sounds pretty good to me. You guys, let me know your thoughts. Man became free through awareness of himself and with this knowledge denied any kinship with the beast. As he was no longer in harmonious relationship with things of the earth, he became discontent, discontented, dissatisfied and restless because he was, you know, looking to things above, right? He, he was rising above the earth, wanting to return to heaven. He wanted to belong, but felt his place of belonging was not there uh, in this earth, right? He, and that's true. We all want to belong here. And we all feel that sense of like, we don't belong here. Like we try to find our home here and we just can't find. And the more you wake up, the more you seek truth, the more you realize this is not your home. And if I, if you feel that this is your home and that you belong here, then, you know, I, I would say to that person that I wouldn't say anything to that person, actually. But I would think in my head that person, you know, is not on the, the narrow path. If he really, you know, if he feels at home here and he loves, you know, like this is, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about. It's getting late. 
He had he had been reborn as a man god, and therefore it is truly said that man was born of earth and spirit under a tree, the symbol of life, and in a garden. Born in the you know the tree of life, garden of Eden, born of earth and spirit. Of course, Adam was born of earth and spirit. That's absolutely true, hundred percent. If that sounds strange to you, if you really think about what they're saying here, it's like no, that actually lines up pretty well. There the eyes of the man and woman were opened, and being above the beast, they knew they were different and set apart from all else that breathed. And the same thing happened with Adam. Remember, he walked around, and he saw all the animals, and he named them, and he's like, I'm not any of them. Like, there's something wrong. Like, like I'm not these. I'm not them. You know, and the other pre-Adamites, you know, they were among the animals, probably. They separated themselves, being now ashamed of their state and strangers to each other. The carnal satisfaction of lesser preachers now no longer sufficed. Uh, that basically means, you know, like the, the sexual intercourse. Like when you, you know, see like, you know, ducks and dogs and cats, how they kind of just all open, openly mate, you know, and they're just unashamed by it. And, and uh, mankind looked and go like, no, like that's not, that's not us anymore. And they, they, they would have had a union that was embodied by the, the, you know, the beauty of the woman and the love for each other would have been something very different. And that's what, how we rise above the animals, among many other things as well. They had lost contact with the source of the love, but though knowing something was lacking, lacking, knew not what. They had fallen into carnal knowledge, which only man can know, for only he feels the reproach of divinity. They were removed from the garden of content by an inhalation of the divine substance and could not return because of the barrier between man and non-man. And um, yeah, uh, let's see. I think we're almost, oh man, we got a little bit more here. Um, I can make it. Kamalik has written, uh, the entwined were cut apart and since that day have never known content. They wander restlessly, ever seeking to unite again and together find the jewel which is lost to earth forever. Lupusus has written, the first woman who came from the void is the eternal, eternally glorified goddess, the inspirer of hearts, the ideal of womanhood, honored by all men, the priestess at the shrine, shrines of delicacy and tenderness. She was the ideal woman who, because of man's nature, is always tempted by his twin shade, the beast in his form. If the beast triumphs and she falls, the ideal becomes enshrouded in winding cloths of disillusionment and something is lost to the heart of man. These words are also there. So this is from another writer. Apparently, they don't know who wrote this. They did not partake of wisdom, and fruit from the tree of knowledge is bitter. Men are denied their true birthright. The fall of man was a fall from loving contact with Allah Hayyam into material carnality. The soul that had shared the consciousness of Allah Hayyam fell into unconsciousness by becoming ensnared in matter. So... You know, and I again, I had stated that it seemed to me that these uh, these sons of Allah in the garden they were talking about, you know, a, a husband and wife had children and that kind of stuff. That they were all they were all divine beings. These were not like men in mortal bodies. And we see right here because we see that with Adam and Eve, we see this here that now afterwards they become ensnared in matter, and that's like the whole like theme of first Adam and Eve as well. The fall severed man from the source of his spiritual sustenance. Thereafter. His efforts were to struggle back in his blind groping for Allah Hayyam after the fall. He discovered demons and found it easier to worship them than to continue the search. That Let me read that again. In his blind groping for Allah Hayyam, he has now fallen from Aru, from Eden, 
He is on this earth in the material realm in, in a material body in matter. He discovered demons and found it easier to worship them than to continue the search. To continue the search for what? The truth of our creator, the divine Allah Hayam, and how true that is. I mean, wow. And keep in mind, I mean, when we're now born in ignorance, we're born in forgetfulness, we're born uh, as babies, just lied to on every front, right? And it just, just watch people just spend their whole lives following the doctrines of demons. Allah Hayam is always waiting. Man has only to look up, but it is easier to go down the hill than to climb it. <laughs> and Allah Hayam, it's like I've said this before, he's so merciful and so patient. And as he just he waits for us to 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 seek him you know he's always nudging us it is easier for man's spiritual beliefs to degenerate than to evolve who among men knows the truth and can write keep in mind they didn't have the word evolve in the ancient language see how they're always you know trying to work that in there who among men knows the truth and can write with certain knowledge would not this certainty be against the law no man was there at the beginning to see and write but of one thing alone we can be sure did you get that? But they're saying here, like, look, like we're talking to you about the beginning, but we don't know we weren't there. I say it all the time. I wasn't there. I don't know. But they can say this. Uh, uh, but so no man was there at the beginning to see and write. Okay. But of one thing alone, we can be sure. The creating Allah knows how and why. And could the acts of one so great be without purpose? And I would just say, you know, I think that they probably do get a lot right in this book. And again, it testifies to the fact that it happens, you know, that the, the Bible is true. That's how I see it. The Bible is true. And we have all these stories that affirm that. And it is Yahweh who has uh, clarified the story. Um, yeah. So I'm going to just stop right there. And it's been two hours. I thought I'd get you through chapter six. I can't believe it took all that time. I had fun just talking my way through it. Hope you guys enjoyed this. And um, uh, have a great Sabbath, everyone. Nice, restful, you know, six days worth of work. And you know that if you follow the command really well, the fourth command, you work six days. If you get the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, and you're just like, I'm done. I'm spent. And guys, I don't know if you can tell, I am done. I am spent. I had a lot of fun tonight. Let's do this again. Uh, maybe next week I'll finish this. I thought it'd be a three-week study, but since I didn't get through the, uh, the next chapter, it might be four. Who knows? You'll find out next week. Uh, Shabbat shalom, everybody, one more time.